You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And I'm Prashant Parmeswaran from Washington, D.C. Prashant, it's a pleasure to be back with you. And um, we have a lot to talk about on today's episode. Um, So... I'll just lay out the agenda for our listeners uh, just so they know what to expect. And if you're interested in the second topic, feel free to skip ahead. But we're going to talk about North Korea's first missile launch of 2017 on this podcast. And uh, then we'll talk a bit about the U.S.-Thailand alliance uh, in the context of the recently launched Cobra Gold 2017 exercise, which uh, Prashant's written quite a bit about. But, you know, first, Prashant, I just want to reflect a bit on what a busy early February it's been. Um, you know, we had a while where we would do these podcasts kind of wondering about the Trump administration, Asia, where things would go with China, Japan, uh, you know, South Korea. And my God, I mean, just so much has happened since the beginning of the month. I mean, we start with, you know, Defense Secretary Mattis's visit to Japan. He reaffirms Article 5 of the U.S.-Japan Treaty. A couple days later, you have the Chinese Coast Guard sailing into the territorial waters of the Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea, followed by, you know, a U.S.-China close air encounter, unsafe encounter over the South China Sea, which was immediately followed by the first phone call between Trump and Xi since uh, Trump's inauguration. Um, And then, you know, just after that, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe visited um, and you had the North Korean missile launch. So it's just been it's just been a really uh, busy period in terms of Northeast Asia, U.S. interactions. But um, yeah, so, you know, I think I think that's kind of where we are right now. (laughs) Definitely a lot to talk about. Indeed, yeah, um, and uh, on you know one of the topics that I think we've talked about uh, a lot uh, on previous episodes in this podcast, and it's it sort of proven to be true in terms of being front and center, is the North Korean threat. Um, and with the recent uh, missile launch uh, that you covered uh, over the over the weekend, and you know we're still sort of talking about potential implications here, but I'm wondering, uh, you you wrote a piece about this where you went fairly in depth about. Um, why this matters. Uh, it wasn't an, an ICBM test, uh, as, as you correctly noted, which tends to be a focus on a lot of the headlines. But you did mention you know, several reasons why, nonetheless, uh, it's, it's quite important, both with respect to the capabilities, but also how it could potentially complicate what, uh, what planning would be for the United States and its allies. So can you go through a little bit um, regarding the significance of the missile launch? Sure. Yeah, happy to do that. And, you know, I think people who have been listening to this podcast for a while um, know that I, you know, worry about the North Korean threat quite a bit. Um, And uh, this missile launch, the first of 2017, and actually the first since Trump was both elected and inaugurated, um, is is really quite significant. And, you know, the context here is significant. I mean, like you noted, Prashant, uh, a lot of people have been expecting the the hallowed ICBM launch. North Korea has never tested, uh, flight tested any of its intercontinental ballistic missiles. And there's been a lot of nervousness since Kim Jong-un um, briefly mentioned it in his New Year's address. He didn't mention that a test would occur, but he'd said that North Korea had made progress in 2016, which is certainly true. Uh, you know, they tested a, a potential ICBM engine in September last year. Uh, but we didn't see that. And, you know, I think that in itself is a little bit significant because uh, the ICBM test, I think, is in some ways a red line for the United States. And maybe even before the Trump administration, I mean, there was that tweet we had from Trump that got a lot of people talking when he said that it won't happen, essentially implying that the United States might look to intervene to stop that from happening. Um, but, you know, let me just talk a bit about this um, missile launch. And I'll try not to ramble. I mean, this is obviously a hugely technical topic and there's so much to be said. But basically, 
what North Korea has done with this missile test is it's taken its submarine-launched ballistic missile, the Polaris-1 or KN-11. In Korean, it's called the Pukuksong-1, um, and transferred it to land and essentially put it on a truck. And that's a big deal for a few reasons. And one of the big reasons it's a big deal is because last year when North Korea tested its submarine-launched ballistic missile in August, and it was a successful test, it announced that it had, um, you know, developed that weapon around a solid fuel propulsion system. And, uh, you know, I'm not a I'm not a rocket scientist or an expert on kind of fuel propulsion. But, you know, from my understanding is that solid fuel is a pretty significant development uh, simply because it makes these missiles a lot more flexible and a lot more dangerous. And when, you know, you combine that with this new launcher that North Korea has developed, which is essentially a truck with tank treads, that leads to some really um, ugly potential scenarios in the future where the, you know, one of the policy options that comes up a lot is the prospect of a joint U.S.-South Korea preemptive attack. And now that's becoming a lot less attractive. Uh, So let me just talk a bit about what this missile uh, did during its test. So um, it was it was launched off a transporter erector launcher, which is what you call the truck, uh, which which carries the missile and launches it vertically. Um, so we saw that it was a solid fuel missile. We saw that it was cold launch, which means it was ejected out of its canister and then ignited in midair. Um, the apogee of the test was 550 kilometers, apogee being the highest point that it reached during its flight, and the range that was observed was um, about 500 kilometers, um, and this was fired at a lofted trajectory, which means it was fired at a sharper angle to reduce the range to help North Korea avoid having its missile enter uh, Japan's exclusive economic zone, for example, which it actually had happen last year with one of its uh, Nodong tests. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's what we observed. And obviously, you know, there's a lot more to say here, but, um, but yeah, I mean, anything, anything you want me to expand on there, Prashant? Well, I think a, a one, one thing that'd be useful for listeners is, um, as, as you probably alluded to, I mean, there, there have been a range of expected provocations that people have speculated that we could expect from North Korea. But is it fair to say that, um, you know, in terms from a layman's perspective, some of our listeners, um, was this in sort of the lower range um, of what North Korea could do uh, in a sense of trying to send maybe a gentle reminder to the Trump administration that it is a threat, but also not ruining the chances of potential talks and some of the other options that the Trump administration has because it's still in the middle of a North Korea policy review. And, you know, quite frankly, as, as you noted to your piece in your piece as well, uh, we're, we're not at a stage yet where we've entered a series of provocations, and we, we could be uh, towards the end of the month, for example, with respect to the U.S.-South Korea exercises that are, that are ongoing. Is that kind of fair to say, or? Yeah, I mean, uh, in a way, in a way, I'd say that's fair. Um, but you know, I think I think you know, North Korea probably realized that there would be a policy review, um, and in a way, it's expecting the Trump administration to hopefully make a change. I, uh, you know, I can't speak on behalf of the North Koreans. I don't know how well they understand Trump. I mean, obviously, we've talked about this before. It's that a lot of countries simply have no idea to, what to expect, and I don't think that's any different yeah. for the North Koreans. Um, you know, one of the things I will say, though, is that last year, one of the things that North Korea tried to demonstrate as the discourse over, you know, the THAAD missile defense system in South Korea really started to heat up was North Korea wanted to demonstrate that it had tools to uh, both stress and defeat missile defense systems. Uh, missile defense is obviously another big policy option that, uh, you know, a lot of people will recommend as a way to stem the North Korean threat. Uh, a lot of people who don't promote direct talks with North Korea will say, uh, you know, missile defense is probably the next best thing we've got um, because the preemptive military attack option is 
very dangerous. Uh, so one of the things North Korea showed us last year, for example, when the G20 leaders met in Hangzhou, China, was it fired off uh, you know, three extended-range Scud rockets within a minute of each other. And what that was showing was that they could fire rockets quickly. Um, and that matters for missile defense systems, which can be overwhelmed potentially. Um, and that's, again, something that I think matters here. I mean, in in a way, you know, I think both the missile and the truck in this case are quite significant. I mean, the TEL, uh, the truck that the missile uh, launches from here, you know, it, it, we saw it using tank treads. And that's a first for North Korea. And this is a completely bespoke TEL that they've made, um, influenced by some Soviet designs. Um, but, you know, one of the one of the advantages of that is that uh, you can have these missiles. Again, an advantage of solid fuel missiles is that the fuel is built into the missile, so it doesn't have to be right. fueled by a massive convoy of trucks, for example, which makes it easy to spot for preemptive attack by you know satellite imagery analysts um, working for the United States or something like that. Um, so you know what it can do is it can take these. Um, it can take these missiles, hide them anywhere in the country, hide them in valleys, hide them, uh, take them off roads. Um, it's Musudan program, the um, you know the Hwasong-10, the intermediate-range missile that has been called the Guam killer, for example. Uh, you see that on kind of 12-wheel tells normally, and that needs paved roads. And uh, one of the really interesting statistics about North Korea is that if you compare the ratio of paved to unpaved roads, it's something like, I think they have like 700 kilometers of paved roads and something like over 20,000 kilometers of unpaved roads. Uh, so having this off-road tell, I think, really helps their uh, survivability. In a way, it's almost like a, you know, I mean, this is maybe not the perfect analogy, but it's it's sort of like an on-land submarine. I mean, you can have this missile, this canisterized solid fuel missile anywhere on North Korean territory. And that's a big deal because uh, one of the things, you know, everybody was talking about last year with the KN-11, myself included, was, uh, you know, this was a second strike capability. Um, it could be difficult to detect under the water, uh, pose multiple threats to missile defenses. Um, so I think it's becoming pretty clear that the North Koreans are trying to make themselves um, a real threat to any plans that the United States and its allies might have to bolster their missile defenses in the area. So yeah, I'd say that this is a pretty significant test. Um, the Trump administration, the reaction has been fairly muted, surprisingly. I mean, all Trump said at the press conference that was con convened with Abe was that the U.S. stands behind Japan 100%, didn't even mention South Korea. Um, so I think, you know, if the North Koreans were hoping to get some know-how without scuttling any chances of a rapprochement with the Trump administration, I'd say they succeeded. I think there's still a possibility, depending on how this policy review shakes out, that they could get what they've wanted for a while, which is a one-on-one -on -one talk with um, with the United States. And uh, uh, sorry, Prashant, before I ramble, you know, there's one more thing I want to want to bring up that I actually just noticed on Twitter um, before this podcast. I was talking to, uh, you know, uh, uh, Jeffrey Lewis, Joshua Pollock, and Scott LaFoy, um, a bunch of great North Korea watchers that I recommend um, all of our podcast listeners to check out. Uh, Jeffrey actually hosts the Arms Control Wonk podcast, which is a pretty great resource for this stuff as well. But they were talking about, you know, a claim that North Korea made in its state media that it had um, actually mounted a maneuverable reentry vehicle on this missile as well, which again, you know, goes back to the point of defeating ballistic missile defenses. So yeah, they're getting they're getting really serious about this stuff, and uh, I think I think you know we'll see if 2017 is going to be like 2016, and we'll just see test upon test upon test. Yeah, um, and I think the, the the point that you made uh, in the conclusion of your piece is important too in terms of the big picture, which is that uh, North Korea is trying to ensure that uh, a preemptive strike uh, won't be totally disarming, which means it would still be able to strike the United States or South Korea. 
uh, with a nuclear warhead. So it, it's designed to complicate existing scenarios. So even though there might not be as much of a threat to the U.S. homeland directly with some of the other things that people care about regarding ICBMs that make the headlines, th this is still pretty significant in terms of uh, the development of the capability. Exactly. Um, you know, it, it, it's actually weird. I mean, if you think about it in a way, the you know, the old deterrence dynamic on the Korean Peninsula was that the U.S. and South Korea had to worry about deterring North Korea. But, you know, North Korea could plausibly get to a point in the next, you know, five years or so where it has enough of these missiles, enough of these launchers where the deterrence equation is actually reversed. And, uh, you know, the North Koreans become quite adept at um, deterring U.S. and South Korean action. So that could be a very interesting turn of events. Um, anyways, I think, you know, we'll leave the North Korea discussion there. I want to, I want to move on and, you know, pick your brain a bit on what a lot of people, including myself, call the oldest alliance in Asia. And that's actually the place I want to start, Prashant, because you wrote a really fun article about this, um, about which country actually merits that title of the oldest alliance. I'm not going to spoil it for our listeners. So uh, do you want to tell us a bit on how, how we can think about this question and which country you think actually merits that title? Sure. Um, and this is actually a very interesting topic because I've, I've gotten this question uh, from a number of people who read these headlines and they notice, you know, both the Philippines and Thailand are referred to variously, as I point out in the piece, um, as being the oldest uh, U.S. alliance uh, in, in Asia. Um, so if, if you think about it from the, and what I argue in the piece is that um, if you're talking about alliances as being strictly security agreements, um, it would clearly be the Philippines because the mutual defense treaty between the United States and the Philippines was the first of these Asian alliances to be officially signed back in August 30th in 1951. Um, but if you take a sort of broader definition of alliances, think about them as being more wide-ranging to include formal economic arrangements as well. Um, and you want to make the case that uh, you want to emphasize the, the historical nature of some of these links, uh, Thailand would then be the winner because you know, the United States and Thailand signed a treaty of amity and cooperation back in um, 1833. Um, and at and that time, we were still more than half a century away from when the United States um, was, was even present uh, in the Philippines, which was a colony that it inherited uh, from Spain. So... That's, that's sort of where we are. Um, it really depends on how you sort of define the term alliances, how strict you want to be with the definition, whether it's a security arrangement or it can include uh, broader economic arrangements too. And I guess that, that probably suits these two countries pretty well because uh, they're able to have some flexibility with respect to the designation. But it does confuse a lot of people when they see both these countries being referred to uh, as kind of the oldest uh, Asian alliance. So if you had to give a prescription to our listeners, uh, you know, in your, in your personal opinion as a, as a Southeast Asia expert, which one would you say uh, in your view merits the title more? I think my perspective uh, probably be the Philippines. Um, okay. We tend to think about alliances more in terms of uh, the, the the sort of core security sense, right? Um, and the relationship with Thailand, um, you know, given the fact that even though it, it is a U.S. Thailand alliance today, given how loose the arrangement is, um, that actually doesn't doesn't go quite well with an alliance arrangement as well. Um, if you're looking at both these alliances in perspective, so right. No, I actually completely agree with that. It's like it's actually sort of a pet peeve of mine um, when the word alliance sort of gets misused in that sense. And I, and I think it confuses people. You know, you'll have countries like Pakistan, Israel referred to as allies. But I think a lot of people don't know that, you know, the 
the defense obligations actually aren't there. I mean, if you asked, um, you know, maybe a layman who knows something about foreign policy, which of these countries the United States is obliged to defend, you know, the Philippines or Israel, I think the answer would actually um, surprise a lot of people. So uh, yep, I think, you know, exactly. for the for the perspective of clarity, I think that actually is a is a pretty important distinction. Um, what actually, which countries are actual allies and which ones are partners or, um, you know, allies not in the security sense. Um, but yeah, you know, on the on the note of the alliance issue, um, we have a good peg to talk about, uh, which is the recent launch of the Cobra Gold military exercises. The uh, you know Asia's largest military drill. Um, eventually, originally it started off between the U.S. and Thailand, but has since been uh, multinationalized. So, um, you know, Prashant, where is the U.S.-Thailand alliance today? I mean, obviously, there's been some tension that we've talked about previously on this podcast since the May 2014 military coup. But as far as the state of play goes, I mean, what are the Thais thinking about, um, you know, the Trump administration, this change in guard from the Obama um, administration to now this new administration? And, uh, you know, where overall um, are, you know, do things stand here? Yeah, so I think the, the, the sort of big picture is that after the coup in Thailand in May 2014, that complicated the alliance relationship that already had been um, pretty complicated already because of two primary issues. One is the evolution of domestic politics in Thailand, which um, over the past decade and a half uh, has really been swinging from, from party to party and politics has become a lot more polarized, which has you know prevented the Thais from thinking... Uh, as strategically as they would like about the future direction of the alliance, but also there's the the misalignment of threat perceptions, um, particularly with respect to China. Um, the Thais uh, continue to want and and see the rise of China uh, more, much more as an opportunity uh, than a threat or challenge, um, and the United States sees it a little bit more mixed. So uh, there already were complications there, but the May 2014 coup complicated existing uh, ties because. The United States, on, a le- on the legislative side, um, has to cut off certain linkages mm-hmm. with Thailand. And so that complicated things in, uh, during the Obama administration. Uh, but that being said, towards the tail end of the Obama administration, uh, there were efforts by both sides to improve the relationship. Both, thai- both sides actually resumed their official strategic dialogue back at the end of 2015. So U.S.-Thai relations uh, before the Trump administration came in were not really as frosty as uh, some commentators um, um, have argued. Um, but the, the the sort of second point I'd make is that um, the, the case for a stronger U.S.-Thailand alliance uh, under Trump, to my mind, is a little bit overstated. Mm-hmm. A lot of this has to do with the fact that, um, as I argued in the piece, um, that that Trump doesn't care about human rights and democracy, so he's going to give Thailand a much easier time. Um, well, you know, you and I have talked about this uh, several times before um, on this podcast that you know, the U.S. government uh, is not just the executive branch or, or the White House, and many players, um, and several of these players will care about democracy and human rights, even though Trump and his White House don't. So uh, it's 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 unfair uh, to sort of see. Trump's own personal views as necessarily becoming uh, U.S. policy. Uh, but I think the second more important point is that, you know, the key constraint and the key change, um, and U.S. policymakers who are very frustrated will often remind their Thai interlocutors about that. I mean, the real change uh, from the U.S. Uh, alliance perspective with Thailand 
you know, came because of the coup. It resulted because of domestic political situation, uh, the domestic political situation in Thailand. And that domestic political situation hasn't really become a lot more stable um, over the past year or two. I mean, you, you've seen uh, the, the passing of the Thai king. Um, but things are still a little bit uh, in flux. Um, and with respect to uh, the transition to democracy, elections have been delayed again uh, up to 2018. So it's still a, a, we're still left a, with a condition where the domestic political environment in Thailand hasn't changed to the degree that some folks would like, which will uh, sort of limit the ability of the Trump administration to change the alliance uh, to a more upward trajectory as much as it would like. Right. Uh, so, you know, going back to the question of uh, Cobra Gold, I mean, you have the U.S. and Thai militaries, um, you know, regularly in contact. Uh, Admiral Harry Harris obviously had this great, uh, you know, he was extolling the virtues of the alliances um, at the at the start of the drills. Um, but, you know, where do you where do you actually see sort of cooperation between the U.S. and Thailand going when it comes to, you know, specific missions? I mean, you know, Thailand is an claimant in the South China Sea. Like you said, uh, they have their own bilateral considerations with China uh, that have complicated things a little bit. So, I mean, is this is this really just an alliance in name at this point or or do you think that, you know, there is real scope for the United States and Thailand to really um, operationalize what they have into some real uh, productive missions around the region? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's an excellent question because, um, you know, as, as Admiral Harris uh, sort of hinted at uh, in, in his remarks uh, at Cobra Gold, um, you know, people often underestimate the, the operational uh, weight of the U.S.-Thailand alliance. And a lot of things actually get done uh, quietly. Um, and, you know, as, as an example, even as U.S.-Thailand relations were um, a little bit strained following the coup, um, you know, during the earthquake in Nepal, um, the United States used uh, Thailand's assistance um, and Thai soil, actually, to fly out a lot of their um, aircraft to assist in, these, in the Nepal earthquake. Um, and so a lot of the cooperation that goes on between the United States and Thailand um, on things like, you know, natural disasters, humanitarian relief, uh, some of these things like Cobra Gold, which give an additional regional networking capability. Those are things that you know are important and, and will remain. I think the, the key challenge, though, is it all goes back to you know what the Trump administration is going to define as the key threats and opportunities that they see in this administration. If they were to define uh, China as being the principal challenge for the United States, to ask each of its allies and partners, you know, what are you going to do uh, with respect to helping us challenge the Chinese? Then you're not going to find willing partners in the ties. And I think the alliance will uh, not be, you know, seen as a success in that regard simply because it gets to these uh, threat misalignments that I, I mentioned earlier. Um, but on the other issues, like, you know, basic issues like natural disasters, humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, um, and on other issues like maritime security. I mean, the, the United States came up with this maritime security initiative with Southeast Asian countries last year, and Thailand was included um, as part of that. Um, and Thailand offers an additional opportunity for cooperation in the Andaman Sea, away from you know the South China Sea and some of these other bodies of water where you usually see a lot of tensions dominate the headline. So I, I think there, there is a lot of promise on the operational side. Um, but like I said, I mean, these two key issues, you know, Thai domestic politics and threat perceptions on certain issues, um, principally China, I think will continue to bedevil the alliance because these are structural issues. And I really don't see 
um, them being, uh, they could potentially even worsen under Trump. I mean, if you think about particularly the, the incoming administration's attitude towards China um, and the stance that they take, I mean, it, it could actually get much worse. The one other thing I'll say is that the ties are, are very particular about ensuring that they balance the security and military side of things with the economic side. Um, and there was at least uh, a public interest uh, in a very sort of basic level uh, to be part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, right. And now that that's been off the table, um, that creates a perception of a very unbalanced uh, relationship for the Thais. So uh, I think that's been a, quite a disappointment uh, in Thailand as it is in several Southeast Asian and Asian capitals more broadly. Great. Uh, no, I think that was a I think that was a really thorough rundown of uh, where things stand with Thailand. So you know, as the as the bottom line, Prashant, I mean, is is 2017 in any way a turning point for this alliance, or was that turning point really more in 2014? And if there's a turning point to come, will that be you know as you hinted at the when uh, you know U.S.-China relations, for example, start to um, take on their expected negative trajectory under the under this administration, what do you think? Yeah, uh, good question. I mean, I, I think if we were to sort of pick a turning point and uh, and a year, I would say it'd be more in 2018 because that's when Thailand uh, is is. I'm not going to say it's certain, given how many times uh, the elections are delayed, but they'll likely hold their elections, and and I think that will be a, a good lit, litmus test for how politics evolve there. But also, um, the administration still hasn't filled a lot of its um, Asia positions yet. It's actually, you know, now it's by far the slowest administration in recent history in terms of filling this post. So I think it's going to take a while for Asia policy to sort of be. Uh, to start getting implemented, and I think we'll really get a sense of where this administration is um, on Asia and particularly on China. I think by late this year, or early next year, because things are still being worked out. Got it. Um, well, I think we'll I think we'll end today's discussion there. Uh, does that sound good? Sound good. All right. Well, as always, thanks to our listeners for. Um, you know, again, listening to the podcast. And if you haven't subscribed, like I always say, make sure you do. And if you have subscribed, but you haven't left us a review yet, uh, please do so. It really helps the podcast rise up the iTunes charts and get noticed a bit more. And as always, we're open to suggestions for topics. So if you're interested in hearing something on on the show, uh, definitely drop either of us a message on uh, either Twitter or email. Thanks a lot for listening to the show.